One of the leaders uh, described in this book, one of the CEOs, is a man you've probably never heard of, but he's on this good to great list. His name is Darwin Smith. He was appointed the CEO of the Kimberly Clark Company, Kimberly Clark Company. And uh, there's really nothing. He, this is, the Wall Street Journal sent journalists to write an article about him, but they found the interview with him to be so boring that they didn't write it. This guy was like unimpressive. He, he, uh, he was shocked when they appointed him CEO. He was, the, he was the attorney for Kimberly Clark. They appointed him the CEO, and, and, and the Wall Street Journal and others were stunned at this appointment because they were like, this guy does not commend himself in any way for the position. He didn't think so either. He, spent, he said he spent 20 years of his life trying to attain to the job. But he grew up in Indiana, small, grew up uh, a rural farm kid. He grew up in, in, in Indiana, and he put himself through Indiana University while working for International Harvester, which is a tractor uh, company. He worked for them during the day and went to school at night. And, and he was just this hard-working guy, nondescript, just showed up. This, uh, legend has it, or the story goes, that one day while working at the factory, he cut his finger off. He, he accidentally cut his finger off, but he refused to miss class that night. So he, 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 he got his finger sewed back on, went to class that night, and was back at work the next morning. You might say, wow, that's, that's a pretty incredible individual. He would just say, I was, I was just going to work. I was just doing my job. He was not flashy at all. And uh, in fact, they, they said that Two months after he was appointed CEO, he got throat cancer. He got cancer in his like ear, nose, and throat. And, and so they, they thought, oh, man, we've appointed the wrong guy. He's not going to be able to do this. And he said, listen, I'm not dead yet. I'll go through chemotherapy, and I'll just keep coming to work. I'll keep showing up, and I'll keep helping us. And so he lived for another 20 years and served as CEO. He made a radical decision to get out of the paper business. That's what they were. They were a paper business. And he decided that that's not where they were going to be successful. So he decided to sell all the paper mills and to go after consumer paper products. And under his watch, they developed Kleenex. So we, we don't even call, I don't even call things tissues. I call them Kleenex. This, this, that's what's on our stage, Kleenex. It was under his leadership, Kleen Huggies. When he was done as CEO, they actually owned Scott Paper. They, they took over Scott Paper, and they beat their primary competition, Procter & Gamble, six out of eight categories. They were winning. You never heard of him. He said that greatness was a matter of conscious choice. It was just getting up every day and going to work. Greatness as a disciple is a matter of grace-empowered obedience. That's all it is. It's really, it's really, really, really quite simple. Greatness as a disciple is a matter of grace-empowered obedience. Greatness is measured by a long obedience in the same direction. 
In some ways, you might say greatness as a disciple is something that's quite ordinary, not impressive. But I think what Jesus teaches us here is that there's something extraordinary about ordinary, step-by-step faithfulness in following him. What's the secret, though? What's the secret to this kind of life? One of the things we, that I think was important for us, and I think is important for us, is this idea of right here in, in John's gospel where Jesus keeps saying the same thing over and over and over again in this first section. He calls on them to do something. Did you catch what he was calling them to do? What was it? He was telling them abide. He said something about, he said something even more than abide, though. He kept talking about the same thing over and over and over again. Look back at that. Look back at it if you, if you can't see it. It's all right there. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You missed it. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The call here is for, you're right, it's for an abiding that does something. It produces fruit. It bears fruit. And I think oftentimes, I want to repeat this. I said this to us before, but I think this is important for us. When we think of bearing fruit in the Christian life, we think of it as a very personal. We have this, we have this uh, a soda straw vision as it relates to bearing fruit. We think it's just Jesus and me. That, that if I just pray, just read my Bible, then I'll bear fruit. And that is true. Those things are true. We need to abide. That's what abiding is. It's spending time. It's communion with Christ. It's a relationship with Jesus as a result of our union with him. That's true. But it's clear in this section that one of the implications of bearing fruit is that we would live our lives on the mission that he's called us to. It's, just, it's being spent, it's bearing fruit and, and, and having this, living out with this idea of being sent. Just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. He keeps saying this over and over and over again to us. There's, this, there's to be this intentional purpose in our lives. We define bearing fruit this way, and I think it's a good definition, and I think you should write it down, and I think we should try to remember it. Bearing fruit is the image for the good results coming from the life of a believer. So good results coming from the life of a believer, bringing benefit to the lives of others, and advancing the work of God in the world. That's the definition derived from, from the teaching that Jesus has provided the disciples. Bearing fruit is an image. It's a metaphor for the good results coming from the life of a believer, which brings benefit into the lives of others and advances the work of God in the world. 
The, Amy's up here sharing why we should get involved with ensuring the sanctity of human life. You can connect it right here. Bearing fruit is the image of the good results coming from the life of a believer, bringing benefit to the lives of others, and advancing the work of God in the world. That's what we're called to. If we want to be great as disciples, then all we have to do is bear fruit. And if we bear fruit, then we'll be bringing benefit to the lives of others and advancing the work of God in the world. We need to be careful, though, church. We need to be careful that we don't drift away from this calling on our lives. It's so easy to do. It's so easy to settle down and forget that we're actually, there's supposed to be this sense of sentness about our lives, that we're supposed to live with a sense of mission, of, of bringing benefit to the lives of others and advancing the work of God in the world. We should ask ourselves, is that what's happening in my life? Am I bringing benefit? to the lives of others with my life? And am I, through my faithful obedience to Jesus, advancing the, the work of God in the world? Is God using me in that way? Am I giving myself to these things? God wants to help us do those things. He really wants to help us because he really wants us to bear fruit. One missiologist said this, The gracious indwelling of God with his people is not an invitation to settle down and forget the rest of the world. It's a summons to mission. That's so, doesn't that sometimes make you uncomfortable? I would like to settle down and forget. Wouldn't you at times just like to settle down, get comfortable, and forget. I, I think that this idea of moving from good to great, this idea of bearing fruit, of just being faithful to do the things that Jesus has called us to, I do think it's very ordinary. Someone might come and interview you and interview us and decide that it's not Wall Street Journal worthy. Not that flashy. It's just this faithful plotting, which in the eyes of God, in the economy of heaven, means everything but it might not catch the world's eye. The challenge, church, is that we don't settle down and forget. And man, that's a, that's a good challenge for us to feel, to feel living here in Chester County, Pennsylvania. So easy for us as disciples to settle down and forget. To settle down and forget that there's a lot of lostness and brokenness all around us, but we can't so sequester ourselves from the world that we don't come in contact with anybody that's actually broken and lost.
There's so much more I could say. I can't really see the clock. That could work to my benefit and to your <laughs> disadvantage. There's a lot of hurting people around us, church. A lot of people right around here. There's a lot of churches, too. I think there's places where we could plant churches that there aren't many churches, where there needs to be a church. But there's a lot of lostness and brokenness right around us, even in this zip code. Teenagers in Downingtown School District hurting, broken, suicides, craziness taking place between Coatesville and Downingtown West. You read that in the papers today, this, this week. Canceled the homecoming game. Rude and, and disrespectful things being said and being communicated between those schools. It's just brokenness, lostness. Are we going to settle down and forget? Are we going to try to press in and do our part? Are we going to try to push back the darkness that's all around us? That's the mission of the church. There's people, some of your neighbors are killing it financially. they, They look like they don't have a need in the world. But their marriages and families are falling apart at the seams. We can't settle down and forget. We can't settle down and forget. We can't. We sent the Hartzels out. We brought them up onto the stage. The glory's over for them. They got it. All the glory that we were able to give them on the stage, praying for them, loving them. Now they're in Southeast Asia trying to learn the language, totally alone because God has filled their heart with a passion to take the good news of this gospel to people that have no access to it. And are we going to settle down and forget them? Are we going to remember to pray for them? Are we going to give so that they can do what they're called to do. We're not all called to get on that plane and go with them. But we can't, be, we can't settle down and forget that there's need in this world. There's lostness in this world. God didn't save us so that we could settle down and forget. The grace of God at work in us is a summons to mission. It's a summons to bear fruit. Who ever heard of a marine that wouldn't fight? Who ever heard of a fish that wouldn't swim? Whoever heard of a Christian that wouldn't bear fruit? That wouldn't live on mission? Two, two things that I want to point out this morning that I think function as secrets. Secrets to living a, a gospel-centered life that leads to greatness as a disciple. That leads to bearing fruit. And it's two things that Jesus says right here. Two things that he commands. The first is love. 
The second is prayer. So if you want to ask yourself, am I living a fruit-bearing life? Or, or you could ask yourself this question, what could I do? What are the verbs that Jesus has given me that if I did these things, they would be a faithful, a faithful tr- confidence and trust in God? That this is what it means to have life in his name. This is what it means to believe in him and follow him. It, it, it means that you'll be loving others as he loved you. And it means that you will pray. And so I think that the, the, the question for us is, how, what does loving others look like in your life right now? What does your prayer life look right now? Because these are the faithful means of grace that Jesus has given us to just follow, simply follow him as disciples. If we love and if we pray, these are the secrets to a fruit-bearing life. He says it, he says it right in the passage, you saw it. This is my commandment. Verse 12, that you what, church? Love one another. And how should we love one another? As I have loved you. That makes it a little bit harder. (laughs) Greater love has no one than this. He describes it, that someone laid down his life for his friends, which is what he's going to do for his disciples, which is what he has done for us. You are my friends if I do what I command you. And what has he commanded them to do? To love one another. He repeated it in the end in verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Love is one of the distinguishing marks of a fruitful disciple. Love is one of the distinguishing marks of a fruitful disciple. It's clear. It's obvious. It's indelible. It's distinguishing. It can't be erased. God wants us to be a church that's marked by love. If we're going to be great disciples, got to be marked by love. Those two things go together. If we want to create a gospel culture here at Brandywine Grace, one of the, one of the features of that culture will be loving one another. will be loving lost people. So the question we should ask is, is love a distinguishing mark of your life? How has grace so impacted your life that you've become more loving? Less selfish, more loving. Less self-focused, more others-focused. That's what love is. God's grace is at work in us to help us to be more loving. God's grace is at work in you, helping you, causing you, compelling you to be more loving. So the question is, are you cooperating with his grace that's at work in your life, or are you resisting his grace to make you more loving? Some of the Spirit of God is bringing things to mind right now of of ways in which he's calling you, very specific ways that he's called you to be more loving. And he wants you to abide in him that that would be the fruit that is born.
As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. We like that. I love that. As the Father loved me, as the Father has loved Jesus, Jesus loves me. As the Father has loved Jesus, Jesus has loved you. Let's stop there. I love being loved. It's loving others that's hard. But, but he says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And then he says, and you go love people the way I have loved you. See, we look in the mirror and think we're the most lovable people in the world. You actually think you're way more loving than you really are. You look in the mirror and say, what's not hard to love? And it's true. Some of us are more loving than others or easy to love than others. You know what I'm talking about. You don't have anybody in your life that's hard to love. You can admit it internally. You can say it. They're hard to love. They might be sitting right next to you. You don't even have to say it out loud. I can try to love you, but to love you as Jesus has loved me is beyond my natural ability. That's why Jesus said, I'm going to give you a helper. He said that here too, right? He's going to give you the Holy Spirit. You're in a great place if, you, if, some, if God has brought someone to mind that's hard to love, but you know you have to love them. If you say to God, that's beyond my natural ability, would you help me? He would love to answer that prayer. He would love to help you. And then, you know what's going to happen? In your weakness, the power of Christ is going to rest upon you, and you're going to love them in ways that you thought impossible, and they're going to be the recipients of that, and it's all going to accrue to the fame of Jesus because you weren't able to do it in your natural ability, but the Spirit of God empowered you to do something that you couldn't do that you might bear fruit for his fame. It's good to be weak. It's another sermon. What could compel us? What could compel us to love others? What could do that? Just one thing I want to call out. It says he called us friends. <laughs> you, no longer do I call you servants. You're not just a servant to God. You're not just, you're not just a number. Like if they will just do, if that number will just do what I told them to do. That's not. He's, the scripture says that he's calling you friends. If you survey the Old Testament, there were only two people in the Old Testament who were identified as friends of God. Abraham and Moses. Now that kind of personal relationship with God has been expended to you. To me. J.C. Ryle. Always good sermon if you get a J.C. Ryle quote in. 
There is nobody so rich, so strong, so independent, so well-off, so thoroughly provided for as the person for whom Jesus says, this is my friend. You want to hear it again? There is nobody so rich, so strong, so independent, so well-off, so thoroughly provided for as the person for whom Jesus says, this is my friend. That's you if you're in Christ. Aren't you happy? There ought to be some smiles up in here. We got to love. We got to love. God is so eager to extravagantly give of himself to meet the loss, the needs of lost sinners that he sent Jesus to save you. That's how much he loves you. And that's the way we should be living and acting towards others. Lord, have mercy on us and help us. Spirit of God, to live that way. There we go. All right, I still got a little time. Let me say one word of practical application. How could we work on loving one another? I think this is a word that we should think about more as a church because I think it's a way in which we can love people. The word is hospitality. That's the word, it's hospitality. And, and I say hospitality, and you think, oh, we got to have a home like Martha Stewart in order to have people over. No. No, 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 no. Hospitality is just simply making space in your lives and in your home to share time and, and, and fellowship with others. That's all, that's all that it is. You don't have to have the nicest home in the world to do that. You just, have to, you just have to be willing to create a little bit of space in your schedule and in your life to have people over, to be kind to people. You don't have to be a great cook. You can buy it at Anthony's. And just bring it home and eat it together. But I, I wonder if we built a network of hospitality in our church, where we were actually loving one another by having people over into our homes and sharing our lives with them, and then doing it even with people who don't know Jesus. I wonder what kind of impact we would have on this community if we just learned to be more hospitable. Hospitality is love. And I think that could and should be a challenge to us all. One of the secrets to a fruit-bearing life, the secret to, being a, to, to moving from a good disciple to a great disciple, you might say it that way, is just loving others. It's being loving, and I think hospitality is an application of that. You guys with me? All right, let me give you one more. Pray. Another secret to a fruit-bearing life is prayer. Verse 16 comes right out of the mouth of Jesus. He's appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. I'm challenged by that. How much time are you... If you're a Christian, you're united with Christ. You're in union with Christ. And, and, and what he says there 
is that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Do you believe that that was, do you believe that Jesus is talking truth there? So if you really believe that that's true, then I, then we should be able to ask, what have you asked God for lately? What, how much time are you spend asking God for things? That's a strong indicator of, of whether your life is fruit bearing or not. Is how much you pray. I know, I think one of the challenges that I think that, that, that we all encounter, that I can encounter even if as a pastor and as a preacher, is to assume that all Christians pray. I think all Christians know that they should pray. What I'm talking about is like practical, really praying. And so you all just got guilty. You just feel guilty because I don't pray enough. I don't pray. That's not, I'm not trying to motivate you by guilt. I'm actually trying to motivate you by grace, by the love that Jesus says, if you're in him, that whatever you ask of the Father in his name, he's going to give you. Do you really believe that? Man, if we really believe that, I think that would really change our prayer lives. And he doesn't just say whatever you ask. He says something in verse 7. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. That seems like a pro- that seems problematic for Jesus to say that because everybody's going to start asking him for all kinds of worldly stuff. But there's a trick to this that he knows. Abiding in me. If you're abiding in Christ, you're going to ask for the things that the Holy Spirit. Remember when Paul said something like, uh, Help us to pray as we ought. You know, there's this idea that we don't even know what to pray for at times. We don't even know how to pray. But the Spirit of God is at work in you, in us, leading us to pray what we should pray. So as you grow and you abide in Christ, one of the outflow of that is that you'll be talking to him more. And you'll be asking him for things. And you'll be even uh, making great wishes of him. I want more of that. In my life, a prayer spectrum that includes everything from asking to wishing. What's the difference between asking and wishing? Asking is saying something in order to obtain an answer or some information. It's a request that someone do something or give something. That's what asking is. We should do that of God. Wishing's a little bit different, though. It's to feel or express a strong desire or a hope that something that is not easily obtainable would actually happen. To want something that cannot or probably won't happen. That's wishing. And Jesus is inviting us to even make our wishes known to God. Like, God, I, I, I would love for this to happen. I'd love for you to do this. I'm abiding in you. I'm reading your word. I'm trying to, I would love to see this happen, but no, I probably, I probably, I probably won't even happen. God says, no, keep going. Keep going. Keep telling me that because with you, that would be impossible. But with me, all things are possible. You're praying for someone that you want to know Jesus. You've been praying for a long time. Maybe it's a spouse and it's hurting, and it's pain, and, it's, and, 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 and God is saying, keep asking, keep wishing. You're praying for a, 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 a child, 
that's going through a hard time. You're praying and God's inviting you. You've prayed so much that you're tired of praying. You prayed so much that you feel hurt. You feel this strain in your relationship with God because you ask him, but he's not doing. God's always up to something good, church. He's always up to something good, and he's working things out in his perfect timing, just like he promised to do. For those that love him and are called according to his purpose, he's, he's going to work all things for good. And he invites you to keep talking to him about what burdens you. We can make audacious requests of God. One practical application, and then we'll close. Practical application for for love is hospitality. What's a practical application for this idea that we're called to ask and make wishes of God? What could you do? You've got We've got to create time in our schedule to do the verbs that God has called us to do. So so if you are challenged that you need to pray more, then I would encourage you to take the next step. What would that look like if you were to take one step of obedience to God in prayer. What could that look like? It has to look like something in your life. If you just leave it in the category of, boy, I hope to get to that one day, you're going to need another sermon in another couple months that reminds you of the same thing. If you, if you want to make a change in your life, you, you got you to gotta go after it. Like You got to make an adjustment, right? There's a lot of truth in a lot of pop songs. I always, that, that song that Michael Jackson sang, The Man in the Mirror, there's a lot of truth in it. There's a lot of error in it, too. But he, but he says, I'm looking at the man in the mirror, and I'm asking him to make a change. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make a change. I love that. Problem is, you can't change yourself. You need God. So God, God has to be the one that's doing the work. But there's truth in that. If we want to be great disciples, we should look in the mirror, just like the scripture tells us, to look in the mirror and then make an adjustment. Don't be like James says, the kind of person who looks in the mirror, sees that everything's out of whack and doesn't make any adjustments. We're, we, so what would it look like for you if, if, it's, if it's a call to prayer? What would it look like if, if, if there's not much prayer going on in your life right now? Where could you find, and I know you have it, 60 seconds. Could you find a minute, if you're not praying at all, a day to pray? I know you could. I know you could. And at the end of the week, you would have prayed for seven minutes longer than you prayed last week. Watch God go to work. I, I, I'm using an illustration. like I, I'm making it easy, right? But I think what we're asking is, what would it look like in my life to take one step towards change? If it's a call to pray, if it's a call to talk to God more, where and when is that going to happen? If you just want it to happen, but you don't do anything... Here, sometimes examples are helpful, right? So I'll just tell you what I do. You don't have to do it like this. You've got to find your own way. 
And I, I, I move in seasons. So I do things for seasons. I always reevaluate the fall. I've got kids that are in college and high school. So the fall is always a time for me to reevaluate my schedule. So starting in, the, in, in July through August, all through September, and now still through October, I'm still working with the same schedule. This is what I do. Every morning, I won't give you the whole thing. I won't give you my whole morning routine. I am like, um, I'm one of these people that's it's, it's hard to regiment. I'm a real scattered person. But I see the value in discipline. I'm looking for people that know me, that know me to be scattered, but are actually surprised to learn how regimented I am. I get up every morning. The alarm goes off at 6 o'clock in the morning. That's when I get up. First thing I do, I don't grab my phone. And if, I'm, and if I'm obeying God and making no provision for the flesh, the phone is nowhere near me when I get up in the morning. I couldn't grab it if I wanted to. I don't keep my phone near my bed. So I get up. And the first thing I do is walk right downstairs and stand outside. I don't care if it's raining. I don't care if it's snowing. I don't care. I, want to, I don't live in a digital world. I don't live in a technological world. I live in a world that God made, and I want to feel it. And I stand out there, and I look up into the sky, and the first thing I do is say, Good morning, Lord. It takes me about 60 seconds, but I've already got a posture of heart. I'm a, you're a creator, and I'm a creature, and I need you. And I just pray. I have a little prayer that I work through. But I do that. Then I walk in and make coffee. I'm just like you. I make coffee, and I try to get my brain working. And then around 6.45, I take a cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee to my wife. And she's still in bed, and I hand her that coffee, and then she has five minutes. She has five minutes to get out and get dressed so that we can go take a walk. And we walk for 30 minutes every morning around our neighborhood, and one of the things we do is we pray. It's built into my schedule now. It's so easy. We have things that we're praying for through the month of July. We have things that we're praying through for the month of uh, August, September. And so October's a new month. We got new things that we're praying for. We keep this list real small and we pray for those things. Every, pray for those people and those things every day at that time. We don't even pray for 30 minutes. Sometimes we talk for 29 minutes and then pray for a minute. Sometimes we pray for 29 minutes and talk for a minute. It's whatever, however the Lord leads us. And then we get our oldest child off to high school. He doesn't really need a lot of help, but we, we, like helping, we like helping her get off to school. And so we wave goodbye. We stand. We wave. She drives out the driveway. We wave goodbye. We walk back into the house. Amy goes upstairs. I stay downstairs. I go grab my Bible. She goes grab her Bible. And we spend our time. We spend personal time with the Lord. And then we both start working around 8.45, 9 o'clock. I don't know if the Wall Street Journal wants to do an article on that. It's not very flashy. But I have made time for prayer in my life. Do I do it perfectly? Guys, you know the answer. I'm like Peter. I fail all the time. But I've got some kind of system that I'm trying to employ so that I can enjoy the secret of bearing fruit, which is praying. You with me? 
Let me get the band to return. I don't even have, I had a really nice conclusion for my sermon. It was a really good story. It would have been inspiring and motivational. But I'm not going to tell you that. I'm just going to tell you that if you want to be great disciples and you want to bear fruit, the secret is love and pray. Thank you.